we've been studying the life of Abraham and where we come this evening is an interesting passage in a story that affects his life and gives us some good truths. Now we're coming into Christmas season. Everything in the Christmas season works out fine. Nobody has difficulties. Nobody has problems. It's a joyous season. It's a time of peace and nobody has any difficulties at all during Christmas time. No pressures, no problems. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, you don't, you don't buy that. It doesn't work that way, does it? All of a sudden, you know, we're in this, in this phenomenal time of the year thinking about what Christ means and what he's done in his sacrifice, and yet there's still troubles and trials for different individuals. Some people may not get home the way they think, or they may end up with some breakdown, get all this company in, and all of a sudden, not to, not to share, not trying to jinx anything, but get company in, and about that time, the fridge breaks down. Yeah, okay. Um, or sickness. You know, you, all of a sudden you get, you have the Christmas and you're filled with all kinds of relatives and all of a sudden you find out that there's the flu that has hit the house and everybody's probably going to get it. So things don't work that, that way all the time and going on. Here we have Abraham. I don't know what time of the year it is for him, but Abraham has had a, a lot of really good things going. But all of a sudden he's going to run into some difficulties. He reminds me of a true story of somebody that had, as they were getting in their latter years, they ran into a lot of difficulties. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, poet, writer, well known in American uh, society back in the 1860s. And he ran into some real difficulties about two years before the incident we're referring to. And, and by the way, you know he wrote a Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. If you look at it, if you just pull it out and look at it right now, you'll see that it's a ra rather somber beginning to that song. The reason being is this. About two years before he wrote the song, his wife of 18 years, his second wife of 18 years, was cooking at the stove. He was napping. And all of a sudden, her dress caught on fire. He woke up to her screams. He runs in. He tries to help her. And the flames gave her such serious injuries that the next day she passed away from the, from the burns. He was so affected and so burnt by the flames that he couldn't even go to the funeral. And after that is when he wore the long beard because of all the scarring that took place. His family was so concerned about him because he was so distraught that they considered putting him into an asylum because of his grief being so overwhelming. He got over it a little bit. And then all of a sudden, we're into that whole era of the Civil War in the early 1860s. And his son, his oldest of his sons, was 18 at the time and insisted that he be allowed to go. And he kept on saying, no, 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 you can't. But his son went, traveled down towards a um, major city of New York and volunteered and wrote his dad a letter saying, I already volunteered, I signed up. And his dad tried to intercede to get him booted out, if you would, to protect him, but it, they couldn't do it. And so his son is going into battle. He gets into a major battle that, and I forget right off the top of my head which one it was, but 1863, November 27th, Wadsworth, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow gets the memo from the government that says his son was wounded, seriously wounded in a battle. He took a bullet in the back. And it was just within less than an inch of paralyzing him for life. But at the time that it comes in the Thanksgiving season and then in the subsequent few weeks leading up to Christmas, they don't know if he's going to survive. And so as, as Longfellow is thinking about this, his wife had passed away two years ago in this time of the year and now his son might die. And he writes the song, 
I heard the bells of Christmas Day. And he writes in a very somber sense. And for him, Christmas wasn't looking very positive. But then he writes these words as he goes on. Then the bells rang deep, loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to man. And he got the sense that things could work out well. Well, here you have somebody that the Christmas season was a real challenge for him. And it was difficult. There was a lot of problems. And, and it just kept on going during that time of the year. Well, like I was saying, Abraham is trying to serve the Lord, and he's been following the Lord for decades, for generations, basically, that he's been following the Lord. And there's been some good times, but where we left Abraham last time was Abraham was experiencing a lot of blessings from God, some tremendous situations. He and his wife, Sarah, after all these years, they have Isaac, and he's growing, and he's doing well. He's prospering. He's having good relationships, and they in the sense of business and those things with neighbors. God is promising in the land. But at the same time, there's lots of trials. There's lots of troubles taking place. In the middle of the blessings, there's the burdens. Do you remember where we left last time? God asked him to take his son, his only remaining son, and put him on an altar and sacrifice him. And the boy, being around 17 years of age, complied. He takes him. And he, in faith, re he, he deals with this trial in a very, very positive way. But what a trial. What a difficulty. And then we end up that story with God saying, because you've been faithful, I'm going to bless you. And he repeats some of his promise at the end of chapter 22 where God is saying to him and blessing him and saying, Abraham, you've been so faithful, you've done so good. And even though you've, you've been blessed, there's this trial you came through. And he talks about verse 17 of chapter 22. In blessing, I will bless you. And in multiplying, I'll multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so he's, he's pouring out more of that promise upon him, more of the blessing. And so here he is. A guy does well, things go well, and then he has some difficulties. Things go well, has some difficulties. It's that up and down. It's that teeter-totter type of a, a lifestyle that he's experiencing. And things then after this go really well for a number of years. Let's say about 20 years that go from uh, the end of chapter 22 to chapter 23. There's about that era of time that takes place that a couple decades, and everything's gone great. But then in chapter 23, he faces another really, really, really major difficulty. You read about in chapter 23, verse 1. A difficulty that none of us in this room want to face, but one that several of you have. He re, he's, uh, records, God records about him, and Sarah was 107 and 20 years old, 127, the years of the life of Sarah, and she died. In Kerjath Arba, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And he stood up from before the, his dead and he spake unto the sons of Heth. And this is the whole story. The whole story talks about him facing the greatest trial that he's had to face up to this point. It's been sacrificing his son, giving up family, and days gone by. But now it's saying goodbye to his partner. Or see you later, I probably should say. And he's facing this really, really difficult moment after having a couple decades of things going peacefully. And in this moment, it's a crisis. And what's interesting is God, a couple things that God gives. This is an entire chapter devoted to the death and burial of a woman. That's very unusual to anybody in Scripture giving that much, and much less a woman. And so he gives the information. By the way, she's the only woman in Scripture that we get her age spelled out so frequently. And so God is giving all this information. There's got to be a reason. 
why God is giving the information. And he's talking about Abraham giving his story, and now, and it makes sense to me, that the wife of 62 plus years, this is an impacting part of Abraham's story. This is really going to have some influence on his life. This is his partner after all these decades. How many more there were than 62 years, we don't know. But from when they entered into the promised land of chapter 11 and 12, that's how long we've been in this story so far. How long we've been following them is that 62 years. And so this happens, and God is writing, and very, very clearly it's saying that this is an important detail that we give a whole chapter to. She's an important woman. There are some very, very important lessons in this chapter for you and me. Now, some of us are sitting here and saying, yeah, but this doesn't relate to me because I'm young, and this is about old people, and yet there is information, there are principles, there are lessons in this chapter on how to deal with everyday problems, especially when a crisis comes in, that every single one of us can find application. Abraham, this man of God, this man of faith, this friend of God, he responds in chapter 23 in a really, really commendable way. And what he does in this chapter is he responds in faith, he responds well like he does several other times, and uh, what he does is he displays for us several areas of his life that he is very, very conscientious about. Different areas that he's going to have focused on and now it pays off, or areas that he's going to focus on now and it still pays off. And those four areas I'd just like to focus on briefly this evening out of this chapter, and I'm not giving them an order of importance because I don't know which one's the most important. To me, they all are, and yet they have different, different semblance. But let me just point out four areas where he focused on that really, really made, his, made him to be a commendable character in chapter 23 and beyond. Number one, here's what he does. He, he had worked on and developed a great relationship with his mate. That's very clear in the text. It's very clear in other texts. Now, we've mentioned they've been married for at least 62 years. When we first learn about them in chapter 11, going into chapter 12, they, we, you know, from that day on, they're already married. They're already you know, a couple. And from that time to the time that we get to this chapter, it's been 62 years. How long they were married, I don't know, before that time. But they've been married a long time. We know that there was times in their marriage, uh, marriage relationship, things weren't great. We know that she was really upset with him. We talked about this when she wanted him to take Hagar as the surrogate because she couldn't bear a child and she was frustrated. We know that he lied twice in saying that she's my sister and, you know, not my wife. I'm sure that that made tension in the home. There's been moments that there's been difficulties. And yet, here's what we have general truth. They are the one Old Testament couple quoted and talked about in the New Testament as an example of a godly married couple. As a couple that have a good relationship. First Peter 3, where he's talking about husbands and wife and relating to one another. It's Abraham and Sarah that are used as the example. And so they have this good relationship, and it's seen in chapter 23, verse 2, where we read just how he responds and how he acts. It says in your Bible, in mine it reads, he mourns for Sarah and he weeps for her. The idea in both of these verbs that are used by the, Hebrew, by the writer in Hebrew, they are very intense words. They are very, very profound words that it's not like, okay, he was broken up, and boy, this is going to be an inconvenience. He is broken up. He is really distraught. 
he is probably like Longfellow, his initial reaction that they wonder, how is he going to handle this? How is he going to survive? How is he going to continue on? He is beating the breast. He is, he is weeping with great lamentations. It's the strongest verbs for mourning and grieving that we have in the Bible. That's Abraham. That's his feelings. And the implication, if you look at the verse, it says then he rises up and moves from his partner and he starts to take care of things. He is stunned. He is just kind of paralyzed emotionally. Some of you have been there. You know what that's like. You have had a death in the family that you're going through the motions, you're operating, and you hope that somebody else kind of grabs you by the shoulder and turns you this way and that way because you, just functioning is really, really difficult. That's Abraham. He's got some of those problems. He has had an intense, good relationship with her. And, and I was you know, thinking about this. Here's an area that he's been building up, and it's been going well for him, and it's come to the sorrowful place that many of us will come to one day, sometime if the Lord tarries, that our partner, one of us, is going to depart. One of us is going to be with the Lord. What do we do in the meantime? Take advantage of the opportunities to enjoy our relationship. Don't just endure. Don't just in, in exist. Enjoy the days that you have. Enjoy the opportunities that we have. Enjoy the holiday that you have to be together. And don't get frustrated over the little things, but enjoy the time and overlook the trivial areas and the small things. We're visiting today with one of our widows. And again, it's been several years since her our spouse has died. And she started crying again today saying, I miss him so much. I just can't wait until I get to be in heaven that's going to be some of us one day that we're, our partner is going to be gone. And instead of being frustrated, instead of getting upset over how much is being done for you know, the shopping or, the, or the, you know, the decorations, enjoy the moment. Take advantage and enjoy the relationship that God allows you because you don't know, I don't know if next year it's going to be the same relationship. And so this year, count the blessings. Enjoy. Those of you who are younger in your relationships, work on a good, a good, strong marriage relationship. Listen to the counsel and the advice that, that is given. And take advantage and grow to the place that you are enjoying and having a delightful time. That's one area that he worked on. There is another area that he worked on, and that is his growing relationship or reliance upon God interesting how this story unfolds. And I think there's a whole lot more here in this story than him going to a funeral home and buying the casket and the burial plot. If you watch it and understand culture, there is a real step of faith being taken by Abraham throughout this chapter. Let me see if I can explain it by reading it first. Abraham stood up from before the dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession where I may have a burying place with you that I may bury my dead wife out of, out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered and said, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury your dead. None of us shall withhold from you his sepulcher, but that you may bury your dead. So use my grave. We'll be like Joseph of Arimathea. You can buy our tomb. And Abraham stood up, bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth, and he communed with them, saying, If it be in your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for or represent me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, where he, which he has, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it to me for a possession of a burying place among you. 
And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. The field give I to you, and the cave that is therein I give it to thee. In the presence of the sons of my people give it I to you, bury your dead. Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land, and he spoke unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if you will give it to me, I pray hear me, I will give you money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham and said, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, and what is that between you and me? Bury your dead there. Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience, uh, in the, basically the, the hearing of the audience of the sons of Heth, the 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And in the field of Ephron, which is in Machpelah, which is before Mamre, the field, the cave which was therein, and all the trees that in the field that were in the, all the borders round about were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children before all that went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre in the same as Hebron. And you and I read that and go, that's a lot of detail. That's just telling us a lot of stuff that isn't important. It is really important. If you were living back in this day, this is a profound, profound lesson, illustration of faith. Let me show you what I mean by that. He has been walking by faith for years. Ever since he's been 75, we've been following his story, that he's been walking by faith, doing what God has said. God had promised him, if you leave the, the land of Ur and then the Haran, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you the promised land. And you're going to be the possessor of it. You're going to be the owner of it. It's going to be in your generations after generation after generation. And your children will be taken out of there, but they'll come back. And the enemies won't be able to stand against them. So God has promised what we call the promised land to Abraham. But Abraham in all of this time, has he ever owned any of the property? The answer is not a bit. He has dug wells. He has camped out. But there is none of it in his, he doesn't have a deed to any of the property. This is the very first time in the book of Genesis that we read that he owns a certain piece of property. And he's got a deed for it, that it's been made sure as a possession of Abraham. That's really profound. That is really amazing. Now, if you start with the whole story, remember what he called himself before the people of Heth, before the Canaanites that he's working with, the Hittites here. He says, I am a mere sojourner. I am a pilgrim in this land. Okay, he knows that this is promised to him. But he has a bigger picture in mind. It's the bigger picture that's talked about, he, about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there. Turn there where it talks about this very story, where God says this is evidence of his faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have down starting, I think it's around verse 11, a reference to this very conversation where we read God commending Abraham for his faith. Why? Because he calls himself a sojourner and a pilgrim. Look at chapter 11. 11 in Hebrews. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive and was delivered of a child when she was way past age because she judged God faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one of him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. These all died in faith, not having received the what? They didn't receive the promises. But having, what promises didn't they receive? Abraham received the promise of the son. But what did he never have? He never had the land. He never had all the generations. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the full promises, 
So he goes on, he says, as having seen them afar off and were persuaded or convinced of them and embraced them and confessed to the others that they were what? What's it say? Strangers and what? Pilgrims of the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they had come out, they might have had an opportunity to go back to that country. But they never did. What's he saying? That if, that if um, I get homesick, I get homesick for Minnesota, that I want to go back to Minnesota in my latter years. Okay? He's saying that's what might happen to some people. But Abraham never did that. Abraham never had a mindset to say, I still want to be a Minnesotan. I still want to be somebody from Ur or, or, or Haran. Rather, he's saying, I gave that all up, and I took no opportunity. And by the way, let me add to this. Do you know when the opportunity is that most people in the ancient Near East would go back to their homeland? It was that one event that took place in their family, when they had a family burial. They would usually make a trip back to bury the person back in the land that was the family land. Do you remember any Bible character that insisted his body be brought back to the promised land after hundreds of years? Do you remember? Joseph. Why? Because that is our land. Egypt's my adopted country, and that's not where I want to have my permanent residence. That's my land. I want to be buried in, in there. Abraham, this passage is talking about Abraham not saying in his latter years, I want to go home to be buried at home. I'm not taking Sarah back to be buried, but rather it goes on and commends them. It says, they now desire a better country that is a heavenly country wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. So when he's calling himself a pilgrim and a sojourner, he's making clear declaration that I, this world is... Not my home, I'm just passing through. And he's declaring, I'm looking for the land that God is giving. And with that in mind, take it a step further, that whole aspect of the burial, what he's doing is by buying land in this area, he is now declaring we are going to be here generation after generation after generation. He's believing what about God's promises? That even though he doesn't have a single piece of property but a burial plot, this is now our homeland. This is an act of faith. You and I don't see it that way because we live in a different culture. But for Abraham to buy the property, for Abraham to insist he purchases it and not borrows it, is saying this is our... But, Hey, can I show you something that just kind of comes to my mind right off the top? This is dangerous, I know. Um, go back to the end of chapter 22. Back at the end of chapter 22, before we read about Sarah's death, it gives us information starting down about verse 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. It's toxic. Look at verse 19. Abraham returned with the young man. They rose up. They went to Beersheba. He dwelt at Beersheba. And then 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 gives you information about who? All of his relatives still living in the homeland farther east. Why do they stick that right here before Sarah's death information. Why don't they stick it after that when we need the information to know about finding a wife in the following chapter, a wife for Isaac? It's because he's giving us the details that there is still family. There is still a, um, what do we want to say? 
um, a natural kinsman pull of the heart that our family, that's, that, that's where we grew up. That's our, I'll use my, my silly illustration again. I still at times joke about being you know, from Minnesota and those types of things, and if I want, I can get the long Minnesota in the boats and the notes and talk that way. But more often than not, I talk like what? Like here. Why? I've spent more of my life here than I did in Minnesota. And isn't it interesting, I still say my roots are with the Vikings. I had to get that in. I just had to get it in there one time. Okay. Still have the roots there, but actually, we've spent more of our life here, by far. And so we, all, we often do that type of thing. Abraham has, is, is making it clear, I'm giving up. I, I'm giving up any rights. I'm not concerned about all that in my past. This is my new adopted homeland because this is what God has promised me. And the only thing I own is a burial plot, but it's enough. It's enough to show that these are my roots. And by the way, do you know who else gets buried in this cave? Guess. Okay, he buries Sarah. Guess who else gets buried near her? Okay, it's going to be Abraham. Guess who else gets buried here? Isaac gets buried in the same spot. His wife gets buried. And so, do, so does ja Jacob. One of the, one of the uh, sons, and I think it's Jacob and Leah, get buried here as well. And so this becomes the, the monument this becomes the deed property that they're going to build upon in generations that, yes, this is our land. This is where we belong. This is a real act of faith. It may not seem like that to us when we look at it because, again, we're, we're so far, but he is declaring, I believe God. Even though my wife has passed away, we're going to, we're, this is going to be our homeland in the future. We're going to come back and here's where we reside. We believe the promises of God. So here he is at the most difficult times emotionally when he is distraught because he's elderly, losing his partner. That's difficult. He is still believing in what God has promised him. He is still saying, I'm not going back to my family. I'm not going back to my relatives. Though he gets all the information about his relatives back in chapter 22, I'm not going back. I'm staying here. I'm not going to go back where I can be consoled by them. I'm staying here. Now remember, he doesn't have many relatives with him. Okay, he has Isaac, but what about Lot? Lot's not in the picture. That was the only other relative that came with him. So blood kin, they're not there. But he's saying, I'm going to still do it. This is where God led me. This is where I'm staying. I'm not going to be emotionally driven to go elsewhere from where God has directed my life. I'm staying close to the Lord. I'm going to abide where God has led me in the will of God, serving God, and still maintaining a strong faith. I'm not going to relinquish my reliance upon God. I'm going to maintain it. I'm going to continue to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And even, I'm going to buy this property. I'm going to be buried there. We're just going to trust the Lord, trust the Lord, act as pilgrims in this world, trusting in God's great work and promises. Now here he has it. He's been working his entire life on building a good relationship with his wife. Had its ups and downs, but he worked on it. He's working on his faith with God. Had its ups and downs, but he is still at the most critical moment of his life saying, I'm going to maintain a reliance upon the Lord. There's another area that he's working on that to me is a real challenging area, his reputation. This story reveals that he was really, really concerned about his reputation with his neighbors. Which, by the way, should we be concerned? We who are born again, should we be concerned how the, uh, how the unsaved view us? Yes or no? Or does it make no difference? Because we're saved and they're just pagan. 
I don't think so. If you and I were to be honest with the New Testament, we would remember that there are multiple different comments in the New Testament that say we better be careful how we conduct ourselves as far as in relationship to unchurched, to unbelievers. We read in 1 Thessalonians, this passage says, study to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands, as I have commanded you, Paul says, that you may walk honestly towards them that are without. Just because they're lost doesn't mean that we can run them over in dealings because we're superior to them. We're saved and they're not. He says, no, 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 no. You be careful of your testimony. You be careful of how you represent Christ to the world around you. In fact, he builds upon this in another text. We know this verse well. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you remember the next phrase? The next phrase, give no offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor the church of God. So while we are glorifying God, we're to be careful how we conduct ourselves with those who are outside the faith. And he goes on and he says, by my own example, I please all men in all things. The idea is I'm not trying to stumble anyone. And that doesn't mean he compromises truth. It doesn't mean he gives up truth. But rather he is careful that he adorns the gospel as Titus tells us to do in Titus chapter 2 verse 13. That we are 2.11. That we adorn the gospel by the way we work, by the way we talk. In Colossians he writes this, walk in wisdom towards them that are without redeeming the time. He goes on, let your, one of the ways to do it, let your speech be always, great, seize, uh, be always with grace seasoned with salt. The idea is that we're to be careful what we say, how we act, how we do business. Preachers, Preachers, qualification. Moreover, he must have a good report of them with, that are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. So we should even consider with church leaders that they have a decent reputation with the lost, that they aren't connivers, that they aren't crooked, that they aren't condescending, that they aren't prideful, that they aren't looking and saying, well, I'm a believer, it doesn't make any difference, and I can rip off the lost, or I can, I can um, mistreat the lost, and I'm superior because I'm a child of God, I'm the prince of God, and therefore, those people, I don't have to be cautious with how we treat them. Just the opposite. Here is the prince of Old Testament characters. He is very concerned about how he conducted business. He is, a, he is a successful businessman. And I find it interesting how he reacts with his neighbors in this chapter and a couple chapters before when he's dealing in a business nature that really had impact. Let, let's pause for a second. How did the neighbors around Abraham, un, un, unbelievers, how did they view Abraham? What did they think or say about them? Well, a couple chapters ago, we read about one, co one comment, but here, let me highlight here, I got it reversed in my mind. It says in this passage, in chapter 23, the neighbors are talking and they call him when they say you are a, verse 6, a mighty prince. The word mighty is the word that we get that El Gabor from, that idea. So it could be translated a prince of God, a powerful prince of God. So they're looking and they're commanding 
commending him as somebody who is showing spiritual nobility. That is not unusual. Because remember in chapter 21 when he is dealing with Abimelech, and this is even in the setting where he has the well problems, he has already had um, uh, issues with Abimelech by lying to Abimelech about his wife, and they come up with a treaty together. Abimelech says to him, he says, God is with you. And so his neighbors recognize that. Can I throw this out? Do your neighbors, do your co-workers, do your people that you do business with regularly, do they, would they say, you look like an unusual person that God is with you? Your co-workers, would they say, you, are, you portray a godly trait that they would think? Your classmates, would they say, you are somebody who shows that you definitely have the appearance of a godlike person. And so they make that comment about him. How did he create that reputation? Now we know about his faith, but how did he maintain that? What did he do in relationship in the simple ways of dealing with his neighbors in business with them? What did he do? Can, can I show you several observations right out of this text that are really important for maintaining a decent reputation, a relationship, even with lost people? Here's a couple of things that he did. One is, when he did dealings with them, he worked as, through the proper channels. I don't know how else to say it, but rather than, than, than to, you know, than to just put it in a negative, he didn't think he was the exception. He wasn't condescending, he wasn't pushy. In fact, in this story, he wants to deal with Ephron. And he wants, he's the guy who owns the land. Obviously, when he's buying the burial plot, he's picked it out. He's passed it. He already has it in mind. There's a field, there's a cave at the end of it. He described it. So Abraham knows that. He even knows who owns it. So when these others are coming and they're consoling him, they're showing the proper respect towards the dead, and they're saying, you know, you can use one of our burial plots, he goes, would you speak to Ephron for me? Which was very cultural that if you don't know this person, you have somebody else do the introduction. That was their world. That was their society. And so he's working through the proper channels and saying, would you guys help me out? I'm not going to take your land, but I have a piece in mind, and so I'm going to work through the proper channels. I'm not just going to barrel into Ephron's home or to his, his court and uh, just presume or assume because who I am. And I'm, I'm a powerful, mighty prince, as you said, and so I can just barrel right through. He won't do that. Rather, what he does is he de comes to Ephraim properly. He had done this before in chapter 21. In chapter 21, he had dug a well, not he, but his men, had dug a well. Abimelech's men took the well over. And so when he deals with this, conf this conflict, he approaches Abimelech in a very, very proper channel method. He doesn't come in and with arrogance or, or condescending, but he approaches and, and basically says, hey, we've got a problem. Can we discuss this problem? We already talked about that in chapter 21. And so here he is going through the proper channels, showing respect in the sense of dealing with people, not thinking he's the exception to the rule, that he can jump to the front of the line, that he can just come in and be demanding or bossy or arrogant. By the way, do you know what they often call the Americans when Americans travel abroad? What's the reference often given? The arrogant, rude, loud, and boisterous Americans. Why? Because we go in places 
and we're loud. And we're just, whoa, overboard. We need to be careful of how we give a reputation and a first impression. And Abraham was very cautious of that. In fact, he shows respect to other people, even people who are outside his faith. Did you catch it that twice in this chapter, what is his physical posturing before the individuals with whom he's doing business? Did you catch it? It's stated twice. He does something. When he's in front of them, he... A cultural mannerism that is very respectful to the other person. That is showing... And you may not think it's big, but then again, our manner's important. Is the way we conduct ourselves, even in business... Does it make a difference in how people view us? Yes or no? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. He bows himself before the folk. He shows common cultural courtesies, not a condescending attitude. Something else that he did. He would not take advantage of others. He would not take advantage. This This is so contrary to some of the thought that I do not understand from preachers. I just don't. Okay? Um, uh, in part of my training and being exposed, there was a couple older men that said, what you do as a preacher is you go in stores and you ask for discounts because you're a pastor. Just go in and say, what's the preacher discount? What's the preacher discount? What's the preacher discount? And it was like, no. No. No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. No, no. This is, this is expected that preachers think they, or that, sorry, it's expected that preachers should get a, a special favor from all businesses. I don't agree with that. I, I just, this is my mindset. I, it's just like, come on. Those business people are trying to do what? They're trying to make a living. What gives me the right, just because I'm clergy, that they should do something extra special for me? And I, I, that just goes in such a grain. And so I'm with one of these guys in the Midwest during some vacation. We're going to some place, and he says, hey, what's the preacher discount? And so as soon as he said, I, I know I veered off and got away from him. And he quoted him a price. A few minutes later, just out of curiosity, I went back and just said, you know, you don't know me, or, you know, what's, the, what's your best price? It was the exact same price. You know, it wasn't any difference. Okay. And... When I was in between there, I was watching the store owner's, you know, his, his gesturing towards his other employees. It was not positive towards the preacher, you know, who had asked for the discount. They were obviously talking about him. And so here, he, here's, here you got a guy, here's Abraham. He comes in. This is an interesting, interesting story. He comes in and he says, and they all say to him, we're going to give you the land. We're going to give you the land. No, I'm going to buy it. Part of the reason is he doesn't want to be owing anybody. And this is in his, in his claiming the promise, he's, he's wants, he wants this to be title-free. This is God's. Ephron then says, after he's going through the process, it's, you know, what's the money between us? What's the money between us? And then, then Abraham says, well, I will, um, you know, I'll still pay you. And he quotes a very exorbitant price, by the way, 400 shekels. Is it culturally, is this the way they operated in the culture? Was it that in that culture you were supposed to say, let's, let's do a bartering, bargain here. You're supposed to say, I'll give it to you, and culture says, I'm supposed to say, no, I'll pay you for it. 
And then you're supposed to say, no, I'll give it to you. And I'm supposed to say, no, I'm going to pay you. Okay, then you quote the price. Do some cultures operate that way where there's, a, there's an expected bantering? They do. They do. Frequently, there's that type of thing. Now, that may not be the way we operate, okay? But in certain cultures, is that what is happening here? I don't know. I don't know if that was there. They're just, but I do know this. Ephraim was not timid when he was asked to quote a price. And from one moment saying, I'm giving it to you for nothing, I'm going to give you for 400 shekels. That's quite a bit of difference of shekels of silver. Okay, especially as archaeologists say, this land typically would go for about 100 shekels at that time. So it was a little bit of an exorbitant price, they think. I don't know. But here's what I know about Abraham. Abraham is an individual that he went the extra mile. That when he was asked to do something, in fact, in fact this is so characteristic of him. He's the older, but he lets Lot make the choice. Just out of, That was so abnormal. The younger man was supposed to let the older make the choice. No, he let Lot do it. When he lost the well that he had dug in chapter 21, he pays for it. But he dug it. But he pays for it so as not to have a problem. Because he didn't have property rights to it. Here in this chapter, he pays the full price mentioned by Ephraim without trying to bargain or do any of those things. And again, you know, we don't know how this all unfolded. But he pays the full amount and he doesn't make a big stink about it. He doesn't make this big issue. He doesn't have this problem with it. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be careful about getting the best deal. But can, can I just, you may not like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sometimes we can be so trying to save ourselves a buck or, or a ten bucks and we ruin a testimony. We get so concerned about keeping a few bucks in our pocket that we come across obnoxious, arrogant, and if you handed the person a track right after you bartered them into the dirt, would they take it? Would they read it? It's, a, it's like the silly story I told you about a couple of our teens years ago. A couple of our teens did one of these things. They were running around town at night, and you're going to think it's funny. Okay, there's a, there's a little bit of humor in this. But they were running around town at night. They decided that they were too far on the other side of town from where they lived, so they took bikes off of somebody's porch in the middle of the night. They took the bikes out the porch. They ran. They went home with the bikes. They kept the bikes for a day or two. Then because they wanted to be a good witness, they took the bikes back, they knocked on the door and said, hey, we brought your bikes back and we'd like to give you a tract. I have a real problem with that. That you took something that wasn't yours and then you're saying, look at me, I'm a, I'm a great Christian and you should read my tract. I have a difficulty because I've seen this, where Christians in restaurants give the individual such a hard time who have waited on them, and then they expect them to take the tract from them. Or Walmart, okay, we all know have our moments there, where the clerk is really goofing up, and I have a real tough time with clerks goofing up, giving change back, because they should be able to figure this out. Right? But if we get so upset and so flustered and then we're going to give a gospel witness, 
Do you remember what we talked about just moments ago about that passage? I'll come back. There's a passage that he, I'm going to miss it. There's a passage that says our, our, our uh, speech is always to be seasoned with salt. To be careful how we do business, how we present ourselves. Even if there's a problem, to be careful so that we are maintaining a witness. Do I, do I want to get ripped off? No. Do I want poor service? No. But there's a way and a, and a manner that we can deal with it without ruining our reputation or our witness for Jesus Christ. Abraham was very careful. I, I told you this story happened years ago. We had the kids. We're down at a beach in Florida. It was during one of our vacation times. Kids were still living at home. We go to the beach, and for fun, we saw a lot of seagulls were coming in, so we were pitching up pieces of bread to the seagulls. And the seagulls do what? They come down, dive bombing, and get, it was kind of cool. We weren't the only ones. We started doing it in a couple of families there and a couple of families there. So everybody's throwing up Fritos, throwing up, you know, crackers, and watching the seagulls. And the one woman comes walking down the beach. She has got her head buried in the sand, symbolically. She's not watching, and all of a sudden, a seagull swooped right by her. She screamed bloody murder, and it's not this, this bad, this picture. Okay, but she screams bloody murder, and she says, Seagulls! I'm afraid of seagulls. What are you people doing? I don't want any seagulls around me. Number one, if you don't want seagulls around you, don't go to the beach. Okay. And she screamed and carried on and started using, you know, she was bringing our relatives into her conversation. She was just, it was really bad. And it was like, okay, kids, close your ears. And she was mad. How could we possibly do this to her? Nobody was trying to do it. She walks away after making such a fit about it, and we stopped. I mean, it was just mad. Okay, fine. You're, you're afraid of birds. So we stopped. But you know who was the conversation after she went down the beach? By everybody in that area, she was the conversation piece because she had blown up and made such a, I'm going to say it frankly, she made a fool of herself. Being in the wrong place, the wrong time, and then carrying on the way she did. In, in our business dealings, we have to ask ourselves these questions. When you're dealing with coworkers, classmates, people that you, go, you work with, what kind of reputation do you leave behind? What kind of taste do you leave in their mouth? Your neighbors who live next to you, would they even be interested in coming to something if you invited them to a reenactment? Would they come out of respect for you? Because they respect you? Abraham was one of those fellows that he says, okay, the way I'm going to conduct myself, I'm going to conduct myself as not to leave a bad taste in the mouth of other people. And so here we have number four, and this is, this is quick. He had a good reaction even in his heartache. In this whole story, what we have is him when suffering personal pain. He's got pain. He's got heartbreak. He's, he's bothered. He doesn't become self-centered and demanding. Never get that in him at all in this story. And you never get him lashing out at other people because he's agonizing. You never give, you, you only see him showing a good amount of self-control in this, and even when he perchance is being ripped off, you know, like he did at the well. We know the well he got ripped off. He dug it and he had to pay for it. He, uh, he goes the extra mile. He acts in a way that's appropriate. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, uh, you know, he acts. He doesn't react. He's, he's just making sure that he is maintaining what you and I would say, good reactions at all times. He is the individual that we already mentioned. His speech is seasoned with salt. Here at the time of the busy season, are you an individual that is portraying 
Okay, I'm going to work on relationships with family members and keep them solvent. I'm going to work on a good reputation with other people. I'm going to rely upon the Lord during this time. I'm going to maintain good reactions even in the midst of all this busyness, even in the midst of all the headaches. That's an Abraham. That's a commendable character in the middle of a crisis situation. And frankly, Christmas time can become a crisis to a lot of us. How do you act? Make sure you're a person who is portraying faith in a real manner that honors the Lord. Father, help us, even in our Bible study time, to walk away and take some of this to apply. But more than that, help us in these next few moments of prayer that we would take advantage of this time to help make an impact for eternity.